Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss. Thanks so much for listening. I'm recording this intro in Burlington, Vermont, where I'm looking out over Lake Champlain from my hotel where I'm attending the Vitanord International Conference on Cold Climate Viticulture. The reason I'm excited about this conference is that I think it's in the colder climates that have not been the traditional regions for wine growing that the most innovation is happening in the wine industry. Europeans and those who fetishized European things spread vinifera and vinifera culture relatively easily around the planet to all the dry and Mediterranean climates of the globe, and even other climates, though less easily, where vinifera couldn't thrive without unconscionable expenditures of resources, We're in places with brutal winter temperatures like Scandinavia and North Central Europe, Canada, and New England and the upper Midwest of the U.S. In these regions, resources have always been spent on breeding, adaptation, and innovation out of necessity in order to make wine that could both survive and compete with the global vinifera monoculture. Well, these marginal regions have begun to catch up now, and because of their culture of adaptation, They've attracted the curious and the brave and those with a more ecological mindset. They're now in a much better position to deal with the rapidly changing world environment than the stagnant vinifera culture that is essentially invested in life support systems rather than the health of the patient. I believe the future of wine is in these cold regions, both in terms of the ideas and the fruit that will be able to thrive in the future. If you couldn't make it to this Vitanord, The next one is currently scheduled three years from now in Europe. But don't worry, I plan to share guests and ideas from this Vitanord with you soon. My guest for this episode is Laurel Marcus. Laurel is the executive director of the California Land Stewardship Institute based in Napa, California, which administers the fish-friendly farming and climate adaptation certifications for vineyards and other farmers. Among her many responsibilities, Laurel works with farmers to conduct studies and gather data on farming practices that prevent erosion, preserve soil moisture, increase soil organic matter, and sequester carbon. Her findings provide some conclusive evidence about best practices, as well as eliminate greenwashing and carbon washing by showing that there are nuances and conditional dependencies for almost every scenario. Some of the important things we discuss include how soil type and conditions, as well as the type of soil microbe populations, can impact carbon sequestration. And we discuss her findings about how dry farming and no-till systems affect these conditions, as well as some of the realities and misunderstandings about competition between cover crops and vines. Also, Laurel digs into the seldom-discussed topic of how the use of mineral nitrogen rather than compost and soil conditions can increase the production of nitrous oxide, the most potent greenhouse gas, about 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide. This is an incredibly information-rich interview and provides many practical resources, including funding resources, for how to do wine better. Laurel shows how careful we have to be in the frenzy to do good, to not think that there are one-size-fits-every-situation bumper sticker solutions to our problems. This conversation has inspired me to look even more deeply at these issues, and I hope it does the same for you. Enjoy. Laurel, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, I'm excited to be interviewed. (laughs) That is a great attitude. (laughs) Thanks. I'm I'm glad it's not the opposite. I'm just dreading and combative spirit that you're approaching this with. Um, Now, I... I, uh, I, I wish you could introduce yourself, if you wouldn't mind, just what your your title is at your 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 job and, uh, you know, that that whole aspect of who you are and what you do kind of thing. Um, this is Laurel Marcus. I'm the executive director of a nonprofit in Napa County called the California Land Stewardship Institute. And um, I am the author and director of the Fish Friendly Farming Certification Program and the Climate Adaptation Certification Program. That's amazing. And I heard about you because of some some really interesting stuff. I, I What we'll get into is, you know, hopefully some of this data. You've worked on so many great projects in California with viticulture specifically. 
um, agriculture generally, but viticulture specifically in relation to carbon sequestration, uh, water use, obviously, and dry farming and, and competition in dry farming, things like that. So I'm I'm just teasing that now something that you know we're going to get into some of the nuances of these things and you have some data and some real you, you know you you shine some really important light on considerations and dependencies and nuances to all of these things because so much of it is we're learning is is uh, dependent on specific parameters and conditions in in the areas where these things are being done and monitored and measured um, but I wonder if you could start by talking about fish-friendly farming, which I think is a really interesting certification and how it's a little, and it's a little different than a lot of other sustainability certifications. I wonder if you could sort of talk about that a bit. Sure. Um, <clears throat> fish-friendly farming was started in 1997, which is quite a long time ago. And um, the wine industry was in a little bit different position at that time. And originally it was conceived of as being a green marketing program. But when we sat down with growers in Sonoma and Mendocino counties, they told us that they really did not need green marketing for their grapes. They had um, more than enough wineries interested in their grapes. And their big concerns were a lot of the environmental regulations that were being issued at the time. So for example, in the Russian River we have water quality listings. So this is when the Regional Water Quality Control Board and the Environmental Protection Agency look at a system and say, okay, what are the main pollutants in this system and where are they coming from? So in the Russian River, the main pollutant is fine sediment. So fine sediment or dirt, as most people would call it, comes from just about every place. So it comes from roads, it can come from vineyards, it can come from grazing land, it can come from, you know, grading for urban development, lots of different places. Mm. And the growers just weren't sure what, what this meant for them. The other thing that had happened at the time was the listing of certain species of salmon as endangered. Mm. And so again, Russian River is a good example. The coho salmon was endangered, Chinook salmon or king salmon, and the steelhead trout. And they often have streams going, you know, near their vineyards that have these species in it. So again, they didn't know what that meant. Uh-huh. So they said, well, could you develop a program that would incorporate the practices that we should be using to address these different regulatory processes um, so that we could use our this program to be compliant under these laws. So that was a bit of an ask, but we, um, <laughs> we put it together. And um, as of, well, probably two months ago, we have about 205,000 acres of farms in the Fish Friendly Farming Program. And that's spread over about 10 counties. Um, and of course, it's primarily focused with wine grape vineyards in Napa, Sonoma, and Mendocino counties. Got it. And so it's rather than it being a certification that is that came from a marketing perspective, it came from this regulatory compliance perspective. In that sense, it's, I think, quite different in its at least inception uh, from quite a few of the other, regu- you know, uh, sustainability certifications. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yes. Um, our certification is used for sustainability by a number of growers because nowadays, most wineries require something like that. Yeah. Um, and so it's acceptable for that, but it goes so far beyond the sustainability, um, which are mostly checklists. We actually create a comprehensive farm plan for each individual site that's um, enrolled in the program. And that farm plan will include a complete assessment by our scientific staff of all the possible places where fine sediment could be generated on the property. So this is all the roads, the drainage of the vineyard, the vineyard floor, sometimes the creeks, um, and a set of actions that the grower should take to stop any movement of sediment off of their property. We also look at where they get their water from, what kind of water conservation measures they're using, 
what chemicals they're using, how they apply those chemicals to make sure there's no, you know, drift into waterways. Um, We specifically look at farm chemicals from a toxicity side. So it doesn't really matter if it's an organic chemical or a conventional chemical. They've all been rated for their toxicity to fish and different kinds of wildlife, like birds and mammals, whether they leach into groundwater, a lot of those different features. So we put all that information into the farm plan, and then we work with the grower to get the required management measures put into place. And they get certified by regulatory agencies. So that's also yeah. quite different than most sustainability certification. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is. So how, how would that work, for example, if, if you, say, for example, have a, a conventional farm that's using some you know, toxic to aquatic life or, or an organic farm that's using you know, copper that's pretty toxic to aquatic life, as I understand as well? Um, what, what happens? Like, what kind of management do you ask? Do you ask them to reduce use, cut use, uh, you know, control use? How does that, how do you, how does that work in, in the <laughs> process? Well, first of all, we look at how often they're applying that chemical. Um, you know, do they have, for example, that you mentioned copper. Copper is used to control fungus, powdery mildew, typically, and a few other things. And so if that's the only chemical they're using, chances are they're applying it frequently because that's the nature of how you control powdery mildew. So then we'd say, okay, how close are you to a waterway? What's the likelihood of that chemical drifting into the waterway? What kind of spray equipment are you using? How often do you calibrate it? Um, Could you use something different? Would you be willing to switch over to some type of sulfur, for example, for the organic grower? If it's a conventional grower, they have many more choices. And in general, there is um, a notion in the wine grape growing community that you should alter your use of different types of fungicides so that the powdery mildew doesn't develop resistance. So they often have a plan to use, you know, maybe 10 different materials, you know, over the course of the whole season, growing season. And so if any of those show a high toxicity, what we would say is, why don't you take that one out of the mix and use, you know, this one instead that's lower toxicity. Um, With the organic, they have fewer choices, but there are ways to create buffers, you know, and look at application procedures to try to reduce the amount that might get into a waterway. Got it. Yeah, that's... um... And the Napa, I don't, I don't know if this is interesting, but there was an outgrowth or there is a, a very similar thing that is specific to Napa that is uh, an outgrowth of fish-friendly farming. Is that right? Well, when fish-friendly farming started in Napa, which was in 2002, we were working with the Napa Valley Vintners and the Grape Growers and the Farm Bureau and a number of other groups. And they like to have the Napa name in everything that they do. So they um, developed their own logo, and when a grower would get a fish-friendly farming certification, they would put Napa Green Land logo kind of on top of ours. So they um, most whenever you hear the numbers for the Napa Green program, they're all basically the sites that we have certified. Um, Got it. Because they because of that procedure, we decided not to work with them anymore. And they now have a different program that's very narrowly focused called Napa Green Vineyard. Got it. Okay. And with all of these, uh, if the way you're describing it, it sounds like it could potentially have higher standards than just, you know, some of the other regulatory certifications. Is that is that an accurate guess um, on my part? Well, most of the other certifications are sustainability, not regulatory. So they, yeah, our standards are definitely higher. And the standard, the other side of it really is that you have to have a scientist do the assessment. Most all of the other uh, programs are self-assessment. And, you know, I love farmers. They do great things, but they don't know how to do a road assessment. 
And frankly, all of them will tell me, I don't really want to learn how to do that because <laughs> that's not, you know, the focus of their job. So that's why they work with us. So we'll do that assessment. We'll tell them the things that they need to change. And then they know how to, you know, make those changes and get them done. So it's a good um, partnership between having a scientist come and help you out and, you know, getting getting a more thorough certification that then, you know, counts with the regulators so that they deal with us instead of the government, basically, which makes them all very happy. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've, so this is something that you, you've, an author, you've done this for a few years. Are there practices like for roads? Like if, if anybody's listening right now and they're like, you know, maybe they're not thinking about doing a certification or maybe, it, you know, they're not big enough to do something like that, or I mean, maybe they are, but are, are there practices that you can just say this, these are pretty broadly applicable in all circumstances that would just be good idea for everybody to implement? Well, Kind of. It depends on the property. If you have a okay. piece of property that has a bunch of historic roads on it, uh-huh. chances are those historic roads were not built in a way that is going to be beneficial to the water quality of the nearby streams. Got it. Um, particularly in California, we have a lot of periods of um, very rapid growth. And when you have rapid growth, you have to cut down a lot of trees. So they were logging very large sections of California in, for example, the 50s and 60s to build the numerous houses that popped up in that period. So they put in temporary roads and lots of skid trails and they did all sorts of things that now when you go back and look at them, you find a a lot of erosion. Right. Now, if you don't own one of those kind of properties... There are things that you can do, which is to winterize the road. So that means putting in water bars that move the water from the inside of the road to the outside. And they, um, you know, get put in at certain frequencies. It's a fairly simple thing to do. Some people put straw on their roads over the winter so that they don't erode. You can gravel the roads. There's lots of different choices that people should think about. If you have a right. flat piece of land, you know, not as big a deal as if you're farming in a hillside. Got it. So essentially it's like a bare dirt road is something you kind of want to avoid when the rains come. You want That's not, gravel yeah. or straw and some sort of water uh, channeling right. for the road. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, the same is true for your vineyard. You don't want your the soil your vines are growing in to be subjected to sheet erosion you know, it needs to be covered up with cover crops and, and, and such so that you're protecting the soil because the soil is your economic base. Yeah. So I, I guess that does get into some of the these interesting projects that you're working on that are about carbon sequestration and, and how, you know, cover crops work and, and some of the management practices in the vineyard work. Let's, let's dig into that. You, okay. um, I mean, I, I'm right. Like, it does seem like cover crops are really smart. And, and the fact that we still see bare ground fields almost everywhere we go in California, it seems like it shows how far we have to go, even though it seems like I feel like the science is there already <laughs> showing that uh, it's just so much better to not do that. From your perspective, especially from the waterways and, and sediment being the number one you know, pollutant in the waterways, is are you a huge cover crop? proponent? Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I'm certainly not alone in that. The farmers themselves have a great deal of knowledge, particularly in the vineyards, about cover crops. So a vineyard is a perennial crop, right? You're putting in a series of plants that you intend to farm for 20, 30, maybe even longer years. And it's a big investment. So you want to keep those vines healthy. Well, one of the ways you do that is to conserve soil because the soil is really what grows the plant. And so (laughs) when you're looking at the vineyard, there's kind of two areas. There's the areas between the vine rows, which we call avenues or middles. There's different terms for it. And then there's the row where the vines grow, which is called the vine row. So what most growers do is they either plant a cover crop So this can be grasses, it can be grasses and clovers, it can be lots of nitrogen producing plants like 
different legumes, clovers. So they try to customize the blend that they plant to what the vineyard needs. So they, you know, they put that in the vineyard, usually after harvest or right before harvest, depending on the timing. And then it, you know, it grows when we get some rain and um, you have a nice cover of these, you know, fairly dense grasses and legumes. Um, however, they then typically clear that grass out in the vine row itself to reduce the competition between the vine and the cover crop. And they do that either by what's called in-row tillage. They have these um, really amazing implements that can sense where the vine is so they don't nick it and they plow in between the vines or they right. use some kind of an herbicide that they spray just in the vine row to, you know, keep that plant from growing past a certain point. Now, why do they do that? Do which? Uh, either one. I mean, why care about cover crops in the vine row or, or weeds in the vine row? Well, generally it's because of um, competition for water. Um, also, in some areas, there's frost. So frost is when you get temperatures that go down, you know, past 32 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you have a lot of um, sort of high growing grasses in your, you know, in between your vines or even in the middles, it will reduce the airflow and make the cold air kind of sit right there in the vineyard. And that can cause um, a burn to the new little buds that come out in March. So right. they tend to want to have some control over those cover crops. If you're in an area where you have a lot of frost. Why not mow rather than plow or herbicide that strip? Um, I think it's the implement. Um, first of all, herbicide is very easy to use. It's relatively cheap and quick. Mm -hmm. So you just make one spray pass and you've, you know, knocked that vegetation down enough that it doesn't interfere with the vines. If you're not going to use an herbicide, you're going to have to use a tillage implement that will go in and out of the vine row in between each vine and not nick the vines. And that typically involves, you know, more of a tillage implement, not a mowing implement. But you never know with, you know, new types of um, farm equipment, they might get it down to one that could mow. Now, Okay, I, I guess what I was I was <laughs> I was leading to this idea of of water competition as well. Um, that I, I I feel like there is that uh, you know there is this ingrained uh, presumption or supposition in a lot of viticulture that these cover crops and and other things besides the vine compete and take uh, take water away from the vine. Take you know, and you have done some some work on that. If I'm not mistaken is that right yeah. so you, yes, yeah, so yes um can you talk about that sure we did a um demonstration project with funding from the california department of food and agriculture and uh we're working on a site in sonoma county called the sunny view and it's owned by dutton corporation ranch corporation which is a big grower longtime farmers in the western side of sonoma county and uh, it's a Pinot Noir vineyard that has three blocks and they're all the same soil type. So that's good. And we decided that one block could remain in its current practice, which is full tillage with a cover crop that comes in basically from, you know, native or nearby plants that are growing. Got it. In other words, not planted. And that was what we called our control block. And then we had a treatment block in which we are going to mow every other row uh, and till it. And then we're going to leave 50% of the vineyard in the cover crop. Got it. On both of them, they do do herbicide in the vine row. Okay. So then we monitored different features of each block. The first feature is something called SOM, soil organic matter. So this is the material... Um, that builds up from applications of compost, from growing cover crops. And um, the more of this that you have in your soils, the more fertile and productive they can be. 
And then we also looked at soil moisture, which is measured um, at two different neutron probe sites, one in each block. We um, kept track of how much irrigation water was applied to each of the blocks. And then we kept track of the grape production in each block. Okay. Now we're on our third year of doing this. So I have two years of data, which isn't perfect, but the climate, you know, has given us drought for both of those years. So kind of similar um, climatic conditions. And what we found is that the treatment block, it, it had a great deal more soil organic matter than the fully tilled block. And it had um, more moisture down in you know, the three to four foot deep root zone of the vines than the tilled site did. Um, The production of grapes was about the same in both of them, Um, but the irrigation water use was a little bit lower in the treatment block. So that convinced convinced the grower that instead of doing 100% tillage, that a 50% tillage practice would be better for both of the blocks. Nice. And so, so that, you know, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Did that end the uh, study then? Because they were like, yeah, screw this tillage. We're going to... Well, going no. To um, okay. We had a workshop a few weeks ago about it because one of the things to understand about farmers is that they, they like to hear from each other about the things that are going on in their individual farms because they learn quite a bit from each other as well as academics, you know, and people who do studies. But they... They really do listen to each other. And so there was a number of questions about, well, how about now if we compare this 50% tillage to a no-till vineyard and see how that compares? So we may do that on the site, or um, there were a number of farmers there that volunteered to do that test. And so we could have, you know, more of these demonstrations where we learn more. Now, you know, the obvious question is, why do we want this? (laughs) Um, So there's two things. The more organic matter in the soil, the more it will hold water, the more water holding capacity you have in the soil, the less you have to irrigate. So in these times of having so little water, that's an important feature to be thinking about on a farm. The second part gets back to what you were saying about climate. Climate, you know, we hear a lot about it in the news and, and you can spend a lot of time reading about the climate change issues. But when it comes to looking for places to sequester carbon, in other words, taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and putting it someplace, the soil on the earth is one of those places. And that carbon is sequestered into the soil through the addition and protection of um, soil organic matter. It's made out of carbon. Right. So we want to, you know, look at this practice of having more cover crops that sequester more and less tillage in this context of the economics of farming. So farmers see it as a benefit to their bottom line, not just an expense, an additional expense. So that's why we did that test. Got it. And I mean, I'll I'll just throw it out there. It's harder to uh, evaluate this, but I imagine with more soil fertility, you potentially could have more um, interesting grapes that might make more delicious wine as a potential Mm -hmm. third. (laughs) Yeah, Um, that is, yeah, that is the big question. Does it change wine grape quality? Yeah. And the, the, you know, nobody has really come to a conclusion on that. But I'm I'm um, just throwing it out there. I'm volunteering myself for that study. Okay. Send me around (laughs) the planet. I'll taste the wine from various... (laughs) There you go. Yeah, that that would be fun. Um, You're welcome to join. It's certainly something that would be interesting um, because the other the other side of that coin is as temperatures in California increase, and we know that they're increasing. What does that do to wine grape quality in you know places like Napa, where there was a, a heat wave where it was 117 degrees? Right. So what does that do to the varieties that are grown there now and will they be able to be grown there as that temperature increase becomes more common right big question in the wine industry right now it's a fantastic question um Mm -hmm. 
so what was the soil type in this uh, in this demonstration project? Well, I knew you were going to ask me something like that. Um, <laughs> I think it was a Wichica clay loam. Okay. Um, but it was a it was a, a relatively clay soil. Okay, so d- clay dominant clay loam. Was this was this Russian River? Did you say? Yes. Or is, it's in the Russian okay, River. and yeah. it sounds like I mean you know, obviously it's one study, it's two years. Uh, you wouldn't describe that as conclusive by any stretch, but in this circumstance, it seems conclusive so far that you can do away with this idea, or at least it really uh, draws some skepticism of this idea that cover crops compete with the vines for moisture. In fact, the opposite seems to be true, where it actually helps give them moisture at depth is what it seems like. Is that correct? So far, based on this this limited study so far first of all if you think about the timing of cover crops okay we put them in in the fall they you know start to germinate over the winter and then when spring comes and it warms up this when they really grow okay right but most you can plant annual cover crops so an annual is going to flower and die so once it's dead it's not going to compete with the vine some people use perennial cover crops. So those are various species that are going to go, if they're California natives, they'll go to a dormant state in the uh, summer and not compete. Um, so there's different choices you can make of the cover crop to reduce that competition. However, I have to say, every farmer I've ever met clears them out of the vine row. <laughs> <laughs> they keep them in the middles, but they always clear them out in the vine row because the drip irrigation kind of reinvigorates them to grow. Right. So I think they're right about that competition where they are applying the water. But for the rest yeah. of the vineyard floor, probably not as much competition. Um, so so they are, can leave that. And so there are some nuances there where it's, you know, soil type will, will be, will cause, you know, will, will, will add. Uh, you know, we'll change how this works. I mean, if if it was sandy, perhaps we'd mm-hmm. get different results. Um, the type of cover crop potentially could cause a difference. Like if you had some deep-rooted perennial cover crop, they might mm-hmm. be more competitive, you know, longer into the season. I don't know. I'm just speculating, but it seems like there are some nuance, nuances depending on the cover crops you use and the mix you use. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, this idea of under the vine row versus in the alleys, um, what, you know, whether you can, whether you'll have competition there. Um, and this study actually, right, did, doesn't show what happens if we leave it under the vine row because they, it was all removed with herbicide. And that's good. right. 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 Okay. And like I yeah. said, that's a very common practice and the organic yes. growers yeah. just use equipment to do that. But right. do you also tend to clear that area? And I think it's because of the drip irrigation. You know, right. and we don't want to change that because drip irrigation is such a great water conserving method for growing anything. Um, so we want to, you know, keep the wine grapes on the on the water conservation wagon, so to speak. Now, um, have you have you worked with any vineyards where they're using animals to remove? Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Under the vine row. And have you do you have any data about that? I don't have any data, but um, okay. I do know a lot of people that have sheep. Uh-huh. Um, and some of them absolutely love it. Others find it difficult because the sheep are only needed in the vineyard at a certain time of the year. Right. Right. And so what do you do with the sheep the rest of the time? So it becomes kind of a <laughs> right. chore. I have right. my own, you know, herd of sheep that I now have to take care of as well. Right. There are some services where they move the sheep around. Right. Okay. So there's a shepherd who comes and, puts the sheep in the vineyard and they have to have like electric fencing put in. A lot of times they have to have a sheep dog to keep away coyotes and predators. And then once that vineyard is done, they move on to another one. So that kind of service seems to work really well. And, um, you know, the sheep are a great talking point in uh, tasting rooms and they look really cute out there. They often um, get these breeds of sheep that are kind of short so they won't reach up and try to eat any leaves or buds that are coming out of the vines. <laughs> right, um, right. Yeah, so they're very cute. <laughs> yeah, and there's new, you know, I mean, there's people trying different trellising styles that are higher trellis things mm-hmm. to be able to incorporate sheep. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a great, it's a great thing. 
Yeah, no, it seems like it. And and I, I yeah, I was just curious if maybe you had you'd seen differences based on that yet. I know it's a, it's, it's a whole other thing to study. Um, a whole yeah, other I, factor of complication. <laughs> I've seen there. vineyards that were grazed, and they're grazed in the vine row as much as they are in the middles in the avenues. Right. So yeah, they sheep seem to um, select. You know, they have their own taste for what they're eating. So they'll, first of all, graze out the most palatable of grasses or whatever's growing in the vineyard. And then they'll get down to the ones they really don't like. (laughs) And and some of the weeds they don't like. And so (laughs) then then they have to eat those weeds. (laughs) Right, right. You just leave them there until they eat that. You're going to eat everything on your plate. (laughs) Right, right. And you're not leaving the table until your plate is clear. Yeah, yep. well, and this and some of these nuances that that I you know I wanted to talk about lead also into the carbon sequestration mm-hmm. aspect and and you you brought up how the soil organic matter was was higher in the the less tillage the fifty percent tillage site um, and that that is where you know this carbon sequestration is happening in that soil organic matter can you can you sort of talk about some of the findings that you have as we look at you know, a future where carbon sequestration seems like something, you know, we might get paid for and there's yeah. going to be all kinds of discussion about it. And I'm sure, you know, carbon washing and all, all kinds of things. Oh, like yeah, that. yeah. I, think, I, I just want to jump into talking about some of these nuances that, you know, smart people should be paying attention to when, when discussing. Sure. Um, well, before we developed our climate adaptation certification Um, since I'm a scientist, I always have to read everything. So I read about 350 journal articles, all about the different types of research that have been done on sequestering carbon in agricultural soils. And also the different types of greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with farming. So, you know, the most obvious greenhouse gas emission comes from using tractors or any kind of diesel powered equipment. So when we go out to a site to do the certification, we have a template that we use and we basically sit down with the grower and we document the current practices that they use. So that is, do they, you know, plant cover crops? What kind of, of seed do they use? What do they till? How many passes do they make? Do they do, you know, just mowing? Do they do mowing and tilling? How many times do they spray typically? Um, all that different information. Of course, we will have computerized maps of the soil types because those are readily available. Then we'll also look at the site for where we might be able to plant, say, hedgerows of native shrubs or additional oak trees or some other kind of native vegetation because that's a very efficient way to sequester carbon. We ask them all about their fertilizer use and their irrigation, because one of the things associated with farming is the use of what's called mineral nitrogen. So, you know, when you go to fertilize your plants in your garden, you buy some liquid material and you put it in water. That's mineral nitrogen. So it's a highly refined material that provides quite a bit of nitrogen to the plant. and depending on the way in which that nitrogen is applied and how much is applied, it can either all go to the plant, which is obviously what you want, or you can have um, the production of nitrous oxide. So nitrous oxide is the most powerful of the greenhouse gases. It's about 300 times as powerful per unit as CO2. Okay. So it's, it's the big bad one, so to speak. You hear a lot about methane. Well, methane's about 25 times as powerful as CO2 per unit. So clearly not having a farm not produce nitrous oxide is a big goal. And it doesn't <laughs> get discussed very much, but it's very important to recognize that. So yeah. in general, wine grapes are not a big nitrogen user because of the nature of what they're growing. So if you're growing corn, for example, you might apply 300 pounds of nitrogen per acre for a growing cycle, maybe even more. Right. Wine grapes, you know, nothing for a lot of them. 
And the highest <laughs> number I've ever seen is 50 pounds. And that's for like brand new vines that are just growing. So we make sure that the way that they're using nitrogen will not produce that nitrous oxide flux. So we Got put it. all of this information that we gather into a bunch of models because this is the way greenhouse gas emissions are estimated. And the model that we use is different than almost every other climate program. We use Comet Farm, which is what's called a tier three model, highly sophisticated and site specific. So it's using the soil types on that property and all of this different information that we put in. We have to talk to the grower going back to 1980 about the history of the site, how many times it's been replanted, you know, all these different wow. changes. Because soils change over long periods of time. So you want to get all that in there. And so this Comet Farm model will estimate both the carbon sequestration in each soil type and the emissions. And so you kind of go, emissions? How does a soil have emissions? <laughs> Well, when you till it, you break up the aggregates, these kind of clumps of soil, and then it that carbon that was inside that clump gets oxidized and it becomes CO2. If you don't till very often, those clumps stay kind of hidden. They stay kind of wet. And the microbes that facilitate all these processes um, are able to continue to sequester the carbon in um, the other thing about Comet Farm that's great is it does look at nitrous oxide and irrigation and all these different things. It has a whole variety of tillage implements, different kinds of implements that it can model. Um, you know, there's the time of harvest, there's the time of um, planting, all those different things get put into it. So we're able to present graphs to the grower of the current practices, and then they pick two future scenarios that might be a no-till scenario, a 50% tillage scenario, you know, use of compost instead of mineral nitrogen, things like that. And yeah. we're able to show them, okay, you have these five different soil types. Let's see what happens in each one. So it increases their understanding of the sequestration process. And that's really valuable. Because the farmer can then make a decision and say, oh, block five, that's the one with all the clay. Because clay soils sequester a lot more carbon than sandy ones. And they can decide to make that one go no-till. So they can maximize their sequestration in that regard. Yeah. Most of the climate programs use a highly simplified model called Comet Planner. And it's not site-specific. It takes the soil types from five to ten counties and puts them all together and makes a bunch of assumptions about practices. So, you know, you can get a general idea from that, but it's not like being able to show a farmer what exactly is going on on the property that he's farming and, you know, have them incorporate that understanding into their practices. Yeah, this is, is this all part of the um, climate adaptation certificate that you're talking about? Yep, yep. Got yep. it. Okay. Yeah, and, and the Comet Farm <laughs> model is a USDA model. It's public. And okay. uh, the technical people at the Colorado State University, they keep it up to date. They have a science panel. They're updating it, upgrading it all the time. So it's very much a dynamic living tool. Fantastic. Yeah. So, I, I mean, some of the things that you brought up as we were speaking, I mean, you've already mentioned how clay, you know, so if you have a clay soil, you have this much greater potential to sequester carbon than if you have sandy soil um, dominant. but you also mentioned that, you know, the type of microbes in the soil make a difference as well. And that's really fascinating to me. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what that means? Especially you brought up some really interesting thing about nitrous oxide and, mm -hmm. and no-till and, and th that relationship to bacteria or the mm -hmm, bacteria mm -hmm. and microbes in the soil. Well, um, you can take a teaspoon of soil and it can have millions of individual microbes in it. So a fertile, productive soil, you know, will have different groups of microbes that do different things. So, for example, um, some farmers use ammonium and different forms of ammonium as their fertilizer. They'll put that out there and the microbes in the soil will turn it into nitrate because nitrate is what the plants will take up into their roots and it will help them grow. 
So that's one set of bacteria that live in the soil. When you have a water-saturated soil, which happens, you know, after major rain events or if you have a whole series of rain events, Mm -hmm. that kind of changes what group of microbes are active. They have this term called water-filled pore space. And if you can think of the grains of a soil having air in between the grains, um, and that's actually very important for growing plants, um, when it rains really hard, or say if you flood irrigate a field, for a certain period of time, those water-filled pore spaces are filled with water. And when that number gets to 60%, the denitrifying bacteria become more active. They're, they work in what are called anaerobic conditions, which means non-oxygenated conditions. And they will take a lot of that nitrogen that was applied, and they can turn it into nitrous oxide. So when you gotcha. read a lot of the literature, you see that application of nitrogen and then flooding of the field or a big rainstorm will produce these events where a lot of nitrous oxide comes out of the soil. So one of the practices that we encourage growers on is to not apply a lot of nitrogen at the end of the harvest. Do it when the vine has still got a couple months to grow. The idea there is that you want to fortify the vine so that they go into the following spring, you know, as as strong as they can be. And if they get the nitrogen and then go dormant, that nitrogen sits there on the surface of the soil and the first big rainstorm will cause emissions of nitrous oxide. Right. Now, another kind of interesting sideline to this is there's been a lot of studies in no-till vineyards. And what they found, because the no-till makes the soil moister, is that there's nitrous oxide production. And it (laughs) takes a number of years of no-till practice before you have more carbon sequestered to offset the nitrous oxide because it's so potent. It doesn't take very much nitrous oxide to, you know, require quite a bit of carbon sequestration to offset it. So if you're going to go completely no-till, you shouldn't really do that one year at a time. You should do it maybe five to 10 years at a time. So we always recommend that the grower try it. Try it on a block and see how it does with your vineyard. Because of this potential stress between the growing of the cover crop and the vines, some vines don't take to that really readily if they've been established and have had full tillage for a long time. So you just have to try it out. Um, You know, but people who have no-till vineyards always tell me, gosh, it's so much easier. We just mow it. And, you know, they don't, they don't have nearly the um, energy use that you might see in a, in a tilled vineyard where there, you know, it's just a lot more equipment use. Now, of course, the answer to that equipment use would be to have tractors that use electricity which are coming along, but aren't there yet. Yeah. So, I mean, that I, I think what's really interesting about that is this practice that we think of as, you know, initiating to sequester carbon could actually result in the first few years releasing more nitrous oxide um, that might offset some of that carbon sequestration that you get from not tilling and allowing cover yeah. crops to grow. And um, it, so it just, really, yeah, it depends on your soil too on that one, you know. Right, so it's it, it, that's if it's makes it uh, uh, more more moist. I, I take it. Yeah, yeah. So, so a when, sandy when... soil is going to be a very different creature than a clay soil. Right, and there's so many different variations in between. California has very very high level of diversity in its soil types. One county can have 500 soil types. <laughs> okay, so that's a lot of yeah. soil types. So a lot of these practices are generally discussed through agriculture in the Midwest, which is huh. a really different place. It doesn't have all these soil types. Right. And it, you know, um, it doesn't have perennial crops for the most part either. It has annual crops. Yeah. And it, it has a different rainfall than we have here, a different oh, yeah. pattern of rainfall as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So th- this is, I want to clarify, this is also transitioning to no-till. So like if it was a, for example, a, a like a hay field that had never been tilled, it had just been, you know, hay had been taken off it for a while, and you just decided to auger holes for vines and other perennial crops 
that would be a different scenario because mm-hmm. theoretically it's already been no-till for a long period of time. Um, so you're right. just keeping it no-till. You're just adding new crops to it. Right. So you would have to model that differently than the typical way a vineyard would be put in where it would be deep-ripped. Because when Got you deep-rip, you expose all of those aggregates, soil aggregates, to oxygen and you lose a lot of carbon. Right. So yeah, just augering holes is not going to be a very big impact. Now, do you, are there instruments now that, you know, somebody who has a farm and really cares deeply about these kind of things, their emissions, whether it's nitrous oxide or carbon dioxide or methane, can model or measure what their farm situation and practices would likely produce and how they could improve that? Yeah. Well, we don't recommend that people try to do their own comet farm model because (laughs) they will get frustrated. It's very technical. And it it. took us and our staff a number of years to figure out how to use it. Um, it. So So your recommendation would be come to you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Basically. (laughs) I mean, it's, um, it's always fascinating to work with all these different sites and see, you know, what practices could change that would give them the best carbon sequestration. I mean, you know, I don't want to leave out this idea of planting native plants. When you put a plant in the ground, it grows pretty quickly for the first 10 to 20 years. So you sequester a lot of carbon that way. So if you have like, ed, you know, an edge around your vineyard where you could put some of these shrubs, it doesn't take up a whole lot of space. We're also working on, you know, trying to identify ways to do this that will support beneficial insects. Yeah. You know, more IPM benefits for right. the grower. So I, you know, if they don't feel like they can change their practices in their vineyard right away, they can always put a hedgerow in. And there's funding right. through the California Department of Food and Agriculture Healthy Soils Program for that type of change. Great. Yeah. Are there other and I was just saying IPM for integrated pest management, if anybody wants to yes. look that up and learn more. Yeah. Um if is there are there other general you know beneficial practices like that that you can you know point to you know given that there are all these nuances and it can mm-hmm. get super complicated can you say mm-hmm. okay simplify your life and just try these things kind of well you know. yes there there are um the use of compost is another one um it's, it's better than using ammonium nitrate or one yeah. of the other nitrogen mineral nitrogen fertilizers Yes. And they've been some very long-term studies. They weren't done on vineyards, but they were done on um, row crops in England where they measured um, soil organic matter over you know many decades with the applications of different types of materials like compost, like biosolids, manure. And what they found is that the soil organic matter increases slowly. Um, so if you're at 1%, to get your soils up to 3 to 4% could take you 10 years right. or more. But it only works if you continuously add those carbon inputs like compost. Um, the minute you stop for, say, five years, those little microbes chew up all the soil organic matter, and you'll find that you don't have as much in your soil. And then, so your so, soil organic matter decreases then if yes. you don't keep keep feeding keep uh, what i say like making an offering to the soil gods there you go yeah, yeah. <laughs> Feed those microbes and um there's lots of you know different sources of compost some people make their own some people buy it but when you are considering compost you want to look at the c to n ratio which is the carbon to nitrogen ratio okay um because you with with a wine grape vineyard you don't want to put on too hot of of compost. You don't want too much nitrogen in it. So you wouldn't ever use a straight manure, for example. You would maybe put that manure in a compost you're making that also had, you know, lots of maybe clippings from the vineyard, maybe, you know, um, grape pumice, those kinds of things that you might have available, maybe lots of leaves and such, so that what you're putting on the vineyard won't cause some kind of problem in the balance of the vine between, you know, leaf growth and flowering and all that kind of thing. Right. But Um, compost is definitely a big positive. And, you know, 
there's lots of research going on about the emissions associated with compost. So that's a little bit undecided right now, but um, you can get funding to put compost on vineyards as well in California. Oh, that's how would somebody do that? <laughs> Go to the Healthy Soils Program on the CDFA website. Got it. California Department of Food and Ag. Fantastic. Um, well, how and where do people come to find out more about you and and you know all all the things that they could get involved in through through the uh, California Land Stewardship Institute? Well, we have a fish friendly farming website, um, and you can email us at info at fishfriendlyfarming.org. You can also email me. I am Laurel M at fishfriendlyfarming.org. That's probably the easiest way. Um, <laughs> That's very nice of you. Well, you know, that's my job to enroll farmers <laughs> in these things and talk okay, to them. Fair enough. Yeah, we always have, enough. you know, very, I like <laughs> talking to farmers, so I'm, I'm always interested. Um, and right now we do have a grant that pays for the Climate Adaptation Certification in Sonoma County. We have a lot of people in Napa and Mendocino also signing up for it. And, um, you know, it has its own logo. We allow you to market with it. We can help you come up with your story for your marketing. What we do is we take all that modeling information. We, you know, it all goes into a report that you get. And then we use something called an equivalency calculator, which means okay, you know, your farm is going to sequester so many tons of, of carbon equivalents. Well, what does that mean in terms of taking cars off the road or some other factor like that? So the equivalency calculator gives you that information. So when you want to talk to your customers, you can say, well, we're doing these practices and this is what it's doing for the environment. So you have a, you have a climate um, and very well-documented climate story to tell. I like that a lot. That's very cool. And and I'm so glad that, you know, I stumbled across this article where you were quoted because this is, I just think such not only interesting, but really important information to, to disseminate, especially, you know, I think it's just going to become hotter and hotter topics. These, these areas of discussion, um, as much as they're already starting. And I think this nuance is really important to avoid some of the you know the uh, the greenwashing and 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 just misinformation and misunderstanding about how you know some you know these things are very situational. It's very dependent on soil type and and uh, and microbe type and all these things that are you know very specific to site, especially in California with our yes. crazy amount of soil types. Um, do you have any closing words for for us in terms of you know just? wrapping our heads around these kind of things and moving forward. Well, the climate concerns, I think, have become mainstream. Yeah. Um, with all of these weather phenomenon we're now experiencing, I believe just about everybody in America has realized that, yes, indeed, the climate is changing. So, you know, from the individual grower perspective, you have to have a plan that can not only address these climate concerns and allow you to sequester more carbon, but it has to work for your main job, which is growing a crop. So, you know, we've developed this very flexible program for that purpose, because we don't want to see the government tell farmers what to do in terms of how they do things, grow things, and how much carbon they sequester. So the more people that can do one of these high-end plans and get their their story out there about what they're doing, the more it really looks like the vineyard industry is taking responsibility. And that's going to be really important for each and every person as this climate problem continues to grow. I love that it's an adaptation certification. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, it's, yeah. that It's not like this, uh, you know, here's the list of things you need to meet. Great, you've done it and you get the, your stamp of approval. It's like literally Im embedded into the idea of it is this idea of, of that it's a dynamic, adaptable process of change yes. and, and being able to, yeah, deal with this, this, this changing world that we're all experiencing well, now. Farmers are probably the best adapters. They adapt to weather every single year. So, Right. I have faith that they can figure this out as well. 
<laughs> well said. Well said. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this. I know this is probably just wetted. This has wetted my appetite for more, and I hope it's done that for others. I really appreciate you sharing. It. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. If you'd like to support this podcast and the work that goes into each episode, we have a Patreon page and you can link from the show notes and subscribe and that would be much appreciated. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, I'm looking for sponsors. Please email me at info at centraliswine.com. That's info at C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S-Wine.com. And last but definitely not least, a great review on iTunes or any podcast service is immensely helpful. Thank you so much for your support.